Our first scripture reading this morning is from the 33rd chapter of Exodus, found on page 77 in the Old Testament of your Pew Bible. Moses said to the Lord, See, you have said to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways, so that I may know you and find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. He said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go, do not carry us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people, unless you go with us. In this way, we shall be distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth. Moses said, Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Show me your glory, I pray. And he said, I will make all, good, all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you the name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. And the Lord continued, See, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand, until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. May God bless the hearing, reading and hearing of his word. We continue our gospel reading this morning in the 22nd chapter of the gospel according to Matthew, beginning with the 15th verse. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap Jesus in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with the truth and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay Caesar taxes or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me a coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose head is on this and whose title? They answered, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Give therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are Caesar's. God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. They left him and went away. The Gospel of the Lord. Uh, Join with me in prayer. Gracious God, open our hearts, not just our ears, because it is our hearts that need to hear your word Somewhere between our ears and our hearts, we sometimes convince ourselves that the message is 
not for us. But when you speak to our hearts, we know your word is for us. To the glory of Christ. Amen. I haven't had many opportunities to travel outside of the country, uh, but I do know that when you are somewhere else, all of the currency, your initial encounter, it feels like play money, right? You look at it and say, how can this be worth anything? It looks ridiculous. Um, but then you begin to realize that the engraving of some foreign currency is a lot more attractive than our American currency. No competition here, but it is kind of weird. After the fall of Saigon in 1974, my parents decided that they would sponsor a Vietnamese family uh, as uh, uh, coming to the United States. And so they had worked with a refugee agency that had uh, refugee camps in Guam. And after they had kind of distantly interviewed the information about a few families, they decided that they would sponsor a family that was a Christian pastor and his wife and their seven children, which meant that our home, which had four bedrooms and one bathroom, uh, was suddenly rehabbed into a space that could include all 11 of us. There were my parents, my sister, my two, three oldest siblings had already moved on with their lives, and myself, and the nine members of the Van family. Uh, they were quite comfortable and delighted, having been in a refugee camp, uh, the ratio of one bathroom for 11 people to them seemed like it was heaven. Uh, to me, at the age of 14, it seemed like a grand intrusion. My parents made it very, very clear that it was not mine to complain. Their oldest son, Kwang, Kwang uh, was uh, just two years older than I. He was 16 and I was 14. And we tried initially to sort of bond over age. But at 16, as a Vietnamese refugee, he had seen far more life than I would ever see. Among other things, he fluently spoke four languages. He spoke uh, Vietnamese, he spoke French, he spoke English, and he spoke Jirai, which was a tribal language in South Vietnam. And he had also helped his family survive during the fall of Saigon and their travel to a refugee camp. And so we didn't bond over much. But I did try and help Quang sort of fit into the early teenage world of our youth. And we would go different places and we'd talk about sports and we'd talk about values. He perpetually, I think, perceived my experience as outrageously shallow. And by comparison, he was right. I wasn't sure if I was making a connection with Kwong, um, who, by the way, just as an aside, Kwong went on to finish his PhD in comparative religions and is a professor at Yale Divinity School of Buddhism and Vietnamese language and comparative religions, so he did okay for himself. But back uh, when I was 14, now 15, he came to me with a gift, and it was a box that he had very carefully wrapped and presented it to me as a present. And so I unwrapped the box, he with great anticipation, and when I opened it up, there were several dozen South Vietnamese currency notes that added up to several thousands of Vietnamese dong, which was the currency, the Vietnamese dong, the South Vietnamese currency. 
There were the uh, 500 dong notes, which on the back had an Asian tiger, which was very beautifully engraved onto the back of the, the currency. There was the 200 dong note uh, with the warrior Nianjin Hu, who later on became Quang Trung, who was the emperor of Japan or of, uh, of Vietnam, the United North and South Vietnam in the 19th century, and was a noted Vietnamese emperor. Uh, he pointed out that the name Quang Tuk, which was the name of the emperor, was he was named for him. Quang was his name as well. And I told him that I, I just couldn't comfortably receive such a generous gift, and I thought that he'd maybe lost his mind giving it to me. But he responded to me with words that I will remember the rest of my life because in reality, they were not a euphemism. They were not a comparison or a metaphor. He told me they are not worth the paper on which they are printed. One of the ways he was different from me is I would have said they're not worth the paper they're printed on, but he always had precise grammar, so the preposition didn't end the sentence. The Vietnamese government had fallen and so the currency was worthless they were now just very very pretty pictures on small pieces of paper and that he had many more and so I need not worry what I didn't understand at the time was that Kwong was giving me my first supply-side economic theory lecture currency is worth only what we collectively agree it to be worth. Years later, I'm at the University of Chicago in my first economics class with Dr. McCluskey, who began the first class by holding up a green piece of paper. He then took a lighter and he burned that green piece of paper. Without any words, he then held up a $20 bill and burned it. Well, the class gasped. And he pointed out that the only difference between the first piece of paper and the second piece of paper was our gasp. What gave the Jackson value was our collective decision that it had value. And I thought back the years before when Kwong was explaining to me exactly the same thing about his gift of worthless South Vietnamese currency to me. This came back to me as I was reading our gospel lesson today. Jesus to our knowledge, did not take any classes in finance. But when the Pharisees attempted to trap him up about a question of value, he fully comprehended the point. Is it lawful to pay taxes? They asked him, fully planning to trip him up. Notice it says that there were both Pharisees and Herodians. The Herodians were sort of the toadies for the Roman government, and the Pharisees were the toadies for the temple governance. And so they knew that if he said yes or no, he would immediately annoy one group or another. Perhaps 
The Herodians, if he said you shouldn't pay taxes, could turn him over to the Roman authorities and then he would be tried for sedition because he was denying the right of the Romans to control Judea. On the other hand, the Pharisees could say if he said yes, pay taxes, then they would say, well, how can you participate in such a pagan, corrupt governance? Now, this story is just a few paragraphs after Jesus had cleansed the temple. What happened? He came into the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers. right? Because the Roman currency had stamps of the emperor's face on them, they could not be brought into the temple. What's the second commandment? You shall not make any graven image. And the emperor was worshipped as a god. And so Roman currency were little imperial idols with the face of their god on them. And so when you came to the temple just before you went in, if you were going to make an offering, it would be as if we had a kiosk in the narthex before you came into the sanctuary. You'd need to take all of your script and convert it into FPCLG script so that it could be traded and offered as an offering inside the temple instead of these, uh, these graven images that you're carrying around in their pockets. So they thought that Jesus must have some opinion about taxation and about money and finance. There were two sets of taxes. There were the taxes to the Romans and there were taxes to the temple. And they had to be paid in different currency. And guess who cleaned up in both taxations? Most people did not get paid in cash, Roman or temple cash. They got paid in whatever produce they made. They received bread, they received spices, they received artisanal work. And so for them to pay the Roman tax, they would have to go to a money changer and they would buy whatever it was, like a pawn shop. They would give them cash in exchange for what goods they brought. And then they had to take their Roman money and go to the temple and change that into temple currency. Guess who cleaned up? It was the tax collectors and the money exchangers because they set the exchange rate in real time at the table. If you've been in a foreign country and you realize the exchange rate that you got at the airport was a huge mistake... Imagine that being the way in which you encountered money every day of your life. And so Jesus had flipped over the tables, and then they ask him a question, and he asks for one of those coins. Give me me the coin that you pay the tax with. And he, he looks at it, and he says, whose face is on this coin? Who is gazing back at me when I look at it? Because the strange thing about graven images is if you press them hard enough against yourself, you will take on that image. The graven image, the gaze of value looking back at the holder. Moses was wondering about gaze. Moses says to God, we need your presence. Literally, we need your eye on us. We need your gaze or we are going to be toast. 
When we look to you, God, do you gaze back? Are you looking at me? Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, says the child at the playground or on the end of the diving board before they've even figured out what their dive is going to be. We want the gaze that will not look away. The child that is affirmed, the child that knows, no, 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 I'll put down my phone, I'll look at you. We're valued by that gaze. We know who we are because of that gaze. And so Moses says, God, are you gazing at us? Are you looking at us? Are you giving us value from your attention? And it is the divine gaze that God gives to Moses And it is that same divine gaze that gives to us value, eternal value. It is, you might say, what gives us currency. Deuteronomy 31, which timetable parallels this passage from Exodus. Deuteronomy and Exodus often talk about the same points of time. They're not sequential, they're they're concurrent. And after Moses has written the law and about this same period of time when Moses has gone to the mountain and asked about God's gaze, Moses in Deuteronomy 31, we were told, he wrote a poem. He wrote a song, in fact. He was done with his work and he turned his work from law to poetry. And he wrote this song that he wanted everybody to sing. And in fact, he told his successor Joshua, now you teach everybody this song because I really like this hymn that I wrote. And everybody has to know it. And so in Deuteronomy 32, we have this hymn that Moses wrote. We don't know the tune because they didn't know how to write down tunes then. But we do know the words. And from the fifth stanza of this poem comes this verse. In a desert land, God found him. In a barren and howling waste, he shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle, stirs up its nest and hovers over its young. The apple of his eye. Now that's a King James translation. And it's stuck in most of the English translations. The apple of the eye. That's not what's in the Hebrew. The sense in the King James comes, if you take an apple and you cut it, and you have the seeds staring back at you, it's kind of like the little pupils are looking at you. And that's the word actually in the Hebrew He watched us, he guarded us with the pupil of his eye. But the word is even richer than that because the Hebrew word for pupil has to do with a sense of reflective liquidity, like you see your image, your reflection in the still waters of a pond. God's apple of the eye in the Hebrew means the little man in the eye or the little woman in the eye. Imagine being so close to another that you can see your reflection in their eye. That's God's gaze upon us, intimately so close that when we look to God, we can see our reflection in God's eyes. That kind of gaze. 
not a casual glance, not a quick look, not a, uh-huh, I got you. It is the intense stare of one who loves, who cares, who values. It's a question of gaze. Jesus said, who's gazing back at you with this coin? And the gaze of the empty-eyed emperor, they all said, well, of course, Caesar. He says, well, then if it's got Caesar's picture on it, it must belong to Caesar. You should give it back to him. It seems he dropped it here in Judea. But give to God, whose image is reflected and imprinted in God. The problem of human currency is what I learned from Kuang those many, many years ago in 1975 with a box of worthless cash. Warfare, violence, changing regime had rendered all that pretty paper worthless. There are those around us who manipulate the currencies of value by trying to get you to gaze at their empires and their engravings and their values and their gods. But their currency will devalue. And when it devalues, we rightfully call it a panic, don't we? There is a currency panic. There is a value panic. Inflation in parts of the world has sometimes been so rapid that people did not want to waste time between getting their check and running to the bank because it was gradually getting worthless with every step they took. That kind of transient value is the value that we are asked to invest our time and our lives and our energy and our imagination and our gaze. But Jesus points out to the Pharisees and to the Herodians, there is a currency of value which does not bring panic. Why? Because it will not devalue. God said to Moses, you have found favor in my sight. You are the little man in my eye. God says to us, you need not panic about those things where the value will deteriorate because you are of eternal value to me. Give to Caesar whatever it is that's Caesar's. The little images, they're of no consequence to our priority or panic. Told you. <laughs> Told you. Amen. Please stand and join with me in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, 
the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life.